This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Life's so full on. I've been working on this deck for ages. These steaks don't cook themselves, you know. Life's good with a Trex deck. Composite decking made from 95% recycled materials that won't rot, stain, or fade. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, my guest in this episode... Uh, is not someone you want to mess with, especially if you find yourself opposite her in a courtroom. Uh, She has been a lawyer now for the best part of about three decades. Uh, She's been a senior prosecutor for the state, but these days uh, is an in-demand barrister who's been involved in some of this state's most high-profile court cases. Uh, Outside of the courtroom, she is a mentor to newer members of her profession. She's also been a key musician, an animal welfare advocate, and has a bizarre fascination with the country of Finland. And I'm keen to ask that question, why, a little bit later. But firstly, let's say hello and welcome uh, to Linda Black, SC. Hello, Hello, Linda. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, going well, thanks. Um, Linda, what made you want to become a lawyer? Um, It's embarrassing. I remember getting asked this. Well, go for it. I love (laughs) embarrassing stories. I remember getting asked this question at um, interviews when I was applying for jobs at the end of uni. Um, And the truth is I was completely inspired by LA Law. Is that right? It was. um, In about 83, 84, I started watching it. The golden generation of LA Law. Yeah, well, particularly (laughs) given I'm mainly a defence lawyer now, I was particularly inspired. There was a character called Grace Van Owen who Uh was the prosecutor and she just had this great hair and she looked fantastic. (laughs) and she was just wonderful. Um, My mother, if you asked her the question, would just tell you because I always like to argue. So perhaps it was a a combination of the two. Yeah, but but I had no lawyers in my family at all. So it was certainly, at the time at least, a novel thing to want to do. And has your career borne any resemblance to the life that was depicted on LA Law? Look, there's less, there's less cute men, um, yeah. but other than that, it's, um, it's you know, had many of the excitements <laughs> that I hoped it might have, although, you know, in little old Perth, it's not quite as exciting as, yeah. you know, LA. Yeah. Um, and being an argumentative child, would, you, would your mother say that you were one of them? I was, um, and I was always, I've always been a logical reasoner, so yeah. I would never just accept, you know, when I would say, why can't I do this? It would be, my mother would eventually resort to because I said so, um, which never struck me as a good enough reason. So, yeah, I've I've always enjoyed a good intellectual argument, even when I was yeah. getting in trouble. Would you, you know, would you concede easily, though, if someone presented a more compelling and logical argument than you? Would, were you someone who could just never never give in and never concede? Oh, I or? would concede it, but there were rarely times where people did present a sufficiently logical wrong. argument. Yeah. Well, you know, I was occasionally wrong, but generally not when arguing with my yeah. mum. What about now? Are you tired of arguing yet? It's funny. I don't... Um, I'm a complete softie at home. You know, I'm not the um, I'm not the parent who tells the kids off. Um, I don't like... I find that so hard to believe. <laughs> it's true. I don't... You know, I'm the person if I get a bad meal at a restaurant, I would never complain about the meal. You know, I wouldn't argue over a bill. I'd just pay it. So I don't tend to argue at all in my personal life. I never argue with friends. Yeah. Um, but 
I love arguing in a courtroom and I love, I love, still love intellectual arguments. You know, I love an argument over politics or yeah. COVID or whatever the topic might be. All right. Time. Well, let's get into it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, pick your topic. Um, so uh, apart from being an argumentative child, what else were you like as a child? Obviously, scholastically quite uh, gifted to end um, up um, in the position that you're in. But, you know, what was childhood like for you? Well, you know, I was, I was smart enough, but I certainly wasn't like the top kid in my school. Um, I grew up in Rossmoyne, so, yeah. which in those days was kind of like a country town in the suburbs. So absolutely everyone knew everyone um, and we walked everywhere. We, you know, we walked to school, you'd go to the shops. You couldn't get away with anything because someone would report things back to your parents mm. no matter where, where you were, what you did. Um, it was a wonderful little spot to grow up in. Um, Rossmoyne Primary School was a great little local school and literally everyone went there. Very few kids went to private schools in our area. Um, you know, we just walked and rode bikes and went down to the river and hung out with our friends and bought 20 mm. cent bag lollies from the shops. It really was that kind of, um, I guess, stereotyped, old-fashioned upbringing with, you know, a mum and a dad who had one car between them. So mum would drop dad off at work and yeah. mum did some work from home and um, we were brought up, brought up really very mm. traditionally. Um, but classic music was... Aussie, classic Aussie upbringing. upbringing. We went to Mandurah every year for a uh, Christmas holiday. When it, was, when it was out of the city. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a little a, country town. It was town a big then. drive. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the only things that perhaps made us a bit different, um, we did a lot of travelling. So um, I lived overseas for a year when I was seven. Um, my... Not in Finland. Uh, no, sadly not in Finland, no? although it was okay. in London and America, which yep. is pretty awesome. But um, And the other big part of my life growing up was music. So my whole family for generations has been all about music. So that was probably the most dominating feature of my childhood. Did mum or dad want you to follow that um, beyond school? Look, they... They really encouraged us. So my my grandfather was quite a well-known musician in Perth, as in right. classical. He was one of the only piano examiners. He was a composer. Um, he taught. Um, so he was within this sort of small pond that Perth was in those days, very well-known. Mm. Um, he went over and studied music in London for some time. Um, my grandmother was um, his student. She learnt violin and piano and wow. so she learnt from him. So that's how she met him. That's how she married him. And then my father met my mother because my mother then learnt piano from my granddad. So everyone in the generations had all met through music. So um, mum enrolled me with a local piano teacher. She tried to teach me herself, but we argued too much, um, seriously. <laughs> so we went to um, a piano teacher and the tradition was broken because their son was about eight years younger than me and it right. was just, you know, romance was never going to continue. Just so. the age cap. Exactly. Couldn't be yeah. So yeah, so mum was a piano teacher, taught from home, so I sort of grew up in a world where it was assumed we would all learn and we did. I had two brothers and all three of us learnt piano from quite yeah. a young age. That was sort of the thing we did. Did you love it or did you do it because you had to? I loved it. I, I didn't love practising. I loved playing. Um, and then our school had a music program, so I did clarinet at the school there, mm -hmm. um, which I liked practising even less. Um so, yeah, so music. And then so at the end of year seven, I set a scholarship test for Perth Mod, um, which was a music scholarship in mm -hmm. those days rather than academic, which I got. And that was like the biggest change of my life because everyone in Rossmoyne, 
Everyone went to the same um, shops. Everyone went to the same school. Everyone went from Rossmoyne Primary to Rossmoyne High School, except the odd kid with rich parents who could go to a private school, which wasn't most of us. Um, and then suddenly I just randomly decided to go out of the suburb and out to Subiaco, which was just... I mean, yeah, it was for other me, side it was, of the universe. It was like going to Antarctica. I just yeah. had no idea where it was, what it was, and I didn't know a soul when I got there. So yeah. that was a that was the I don't really know when I don't know looking back quite how I came to make that choice given I'm quite a conservative, reluctant to change sort of person. But that was the big moment of my life really mm. was to decide to do something different to everyone else. And when did you decide uh, during your school time, presumably, to um, let go of music as a as a career, leave it as a hobby, I suppose, or something that you just enjoyed on the side uh, and pursue a, a career in the legal profession? I think it was when I got to Perth Mod and realised I wasn't actually that good at music. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't say that with any false modesty, but you know what it's like? You're in a little school, yeah, in a little suburb. You think you're good and, and you're then, awesome. And like, you know, I was this great person. I could play the clarinet. I could play the piano. I learnt the cello. You know, I could sing vaguely in tune. I get to this music school thinking I'm pretty damn good at music. And within, honestly, about a month, I thought, crikey, I'm really not that good at all. So um, I always loved my music. I did I did a music unit for first year uni, so I never quite let go of it. I taught piano right through uni. Right. Um, but I I knew very early on that I wasn't going to yeah. be making a career out of music because I just didn't have – I didn't want to be a teacher mm. and I really didn't have the talent otherwise to, to make it in the big stage. High school debating? Was that where you first got to grandstand your – argumentative skills on no, the stage? We had, well, see, we had none of that. No, um, really? Because okay. really private schools were the ones who had all the big debating competitions. So, yeah. um, no, there was there was very little debating at high school. Um, I always knew I could talk. So if I had to perform and we all had to perform our instruments, I was just terrified and shaking and, and nervous as all hell. Um, but if I had to talk in front of a massive group of people, I loved it and it yeah. didn't worry me in the slightest. So I think that's probably early on I knew that I would want to do some kind of public speaking kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I was actually quite interested in journalism for a while there. Um, as well, you a, made a good call there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, I really wanted to be a Hollywood would actor and oh, of you know, go and do that, but yeah. that was kind yeah. of relatively unlikely. In, in LA law. In, in, exactly. Or something like that. Yeah, but I think it was just, um, I, I like the public speaking and I just always, I, my best subjects at school were always ones that involved a kind of a rational argument that you could work your way through. Yeah. When you first start out uh, entering into the profession, um, do people send, tend to gravitate, um, I suppose, in, a, in an unconscious way towards prosecution or defence? Because I know you spent a big part of your earlier years um, as a prosecutor. Is that a kind of a natural progression that you make or do people sort of make a a conscious decision early on to go one way or the other? I think there's very little conscious decisions of anything in those days. Really, when when we got towards the end of our degree... um, the first thing was that everyone starts law wanting to be a criminal lawyer and by the end of the law degree almost no one wants to be a criminal lawyer um, right. because people see the big money and opportunities um, in corporate law specifically but, you know, other areas as well. So there's actually very few lawyers who graduate with this burning desire to be a criminal lawyer at all. Um, and then, of course, in our day we um, there was us and then Murdoch had their first intake um, coming out. Now, of course, there's unis all over the place, but UWA and eventually Murdoch were the only unis with a law school. Um, and so 
my year was the first year where there wasn't 100% employment for all graduates. So, you know, it's very different to how it is now. But back then, you just automatically got a job. Mm. Um, And so for my year, it started to be not about whether you want to be a defence lawyer or a prosecutor or some other kind of lawyer. It was just trying to get a job. Just get a job. And so once you got the job, um, I think most of us just tried to get a job with enough variety that we could kind of see what was out there. So I started as a def- doing defence work um, as well as industrial law and a bit of personal injuries and some general litigation and, you know, you name it. I the went boring to, stuff. Yeah, I went to a, a pretty <laughs> trade union firm called Dwyer Jurak and um, it was just, you know, in hindsight, the best place in the world to start because most of my really close friends in law are the girls that I met in those first few years yeah. um, of my career at Dwyer's. What was the legal profession like in Perth back in those days? Back then it was small. Yeah. Um, it was very male dominated. Yeah. There were very few female judges or magistrates. Um, most of the partners were men. Um, it was, at my firm, it was just wonderful. We had just this close group of people who got on really well. We would stop working about one o'clock every Friday and you Brilliant. Know, drink for the rest of the <laughs> afternoon. Those days are long yeah. gone. Um, and so I think in the early days it was it was. Good nice times. and small and cohesive. That's that's changed a lot yeah. um, since then, sadly, really. But, yeah, back in those days it was wonderful. Yeah, for better and for worse perhaps some of yeah, those changes. It was a lot, um, it was a lot harder to be a, a girl back then yeah. uh, than it is now. You felt yeah. a lot more conspicuous a lot more of the time when you walked in there as quite often the only female in the yeah. room. Well, can I ask you just before we go to a break? Sure. What, I mean, can any, any moments that stand out for you yeah. that were just kind of memorable for, let's be honest, probably – Bad reasons. I remember that going... It just made you feel, you know, wow, I'm in a, I'm in a very male, you know, old, old school environment here. I remember going to do a jury trial in the district court mm. and it was a really serious charge. It was probably one of the most serious charges I'd done at that stage of my career. So I was, you know, a bit of a workaholic, so I was completely revved up and focused and, you know all set to go and quite stressed and overwhelmed by the enormity of the consequences if the trial didn't go so well. I went into court and there was a a male prosecutor, male judge, male associate, male usher, um, two police officers. Back in those days, the cops were the dock guards. um, And then there was me. And the associate, who I won't name obviously, but the associate looked up and said, ah, we've got the token chick in the room. And everyone <laughs> laughed and everyone thought it was hilarious. And, you know, I, I'm hard to offend. And I just remembered looking at them all going, what do you mean? Like, I'm the defence lawyer to do the trial. And then they started making jokes about, oh, well, at least we've got someone pretty to look at if we get bored during the trial. This and is in, in seriously, spoken and out loud in the court. All of them, all of them just having this conversation over me and around me and being really nice. They were all lovely people to me. They were kind. You know, they didn't mean any harm by it. They thought it was funny. They probably felt that it was a way of making me feel kind of wanted and blending in. But all it did was I remember just feeling really uncomfortable, a bit like as a girl, if you walk into a blokey bar where they're all on the TAB or whatever. Um, I just remember that feeling of thinking, I just want everyone to leave me alone and let Mm. me do my job. Mm. Um, And just having this overwhelming sense that for the first time I thought it's going to be different being a girl than if I was a boy. And that Mm. was probably the moment really, because my firm wasn't like that, that was the moment it hit me that it was going to be a bit different for me as a woman than if I was a man. Yeah. That's extraordinary. 
Well, I'll ask you a bit later how much it's changed in the years since. Uh, We need to take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Linda Black is our special guest. Back with more right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, We are hearing the story of prominent Perth barrister Linda Black, uh, SC. Linda, you just uh, before the break there were sharing, you know, I suppose a pivotal early moment where you realised what a male domain that you'd chosen to, (laughs) to enter in your profession. Has it changed much over the years? Uh, look, it definitely has changed. Um, Enough? Think, oh, I think we've still got a way to go. Yeah. Um, what is What are the sorts of things that happen now that still kind of blow your mind? Look, the things, the, the stories over the years, and every every woman in the profession will have a version of this, um, is there is still that inappropriateness that comes from um, the socialising. It's And that's really probably mm. the problem across the board, is that when you have a hierarchical structure within a particular profession and you know law in some ways is like the army you know you've got you've got your judges at the top and you work your way down and no matter who you are or how senior you are you have to be deferential to those people who are above you in the hierarchy and when you bring that kind of structure into a social um, setting it just doesn't work because if I'm at a pub and some random bloke starts hitting on me I can turn around and in you know not not so friendly language say could you please leave me alone and nick off now um or you know you can you can physically react whereas if if a a judge or a senior barrister or um your boss um was to come up and behave in that way it's not so easy mm. as a young female to be able to say you know excuse me but cease and desist and get away from me and so i think that um the legal profession hasn't still quite come to terms with how it deals with that kind of scenario. And while we have a lot more women than we used to in mm. powerful positions now, um, you still have more male people in authority with young females working for them than you do the other way around. And so you're always going to have that kind of problem. Yeah. And I think the main problem that still exists and certainly has existed for me is um, – you often feel flattered, you know, if the judge or someone important is talking to you as a young female lawyer, you feel a bit flattered that they actually would be. And so when you both get have a few drinks and then, you know, there's a sudden rubbing on your leg or an arm around you, your initial reaction is often not one of hostility. Your initial reaction is, oh, my God, you know, this person's actually paying attention to me. Um, and then that sort of fine line comes between at what point do you go, actually, now I feel really awkward and uncomfortable and what the hell am I going to do next week when I have to appear mm. before you again? So I think that um, that power imbalance really still hasn't kind of sorted itself out in those social settings in particular. When we saw um, one of the country's most prominent judges, uh, what, two, three years ago, Dyson Hayden, you know, have his his day of reckoning, if I can call it that. There was a sense that the whole profession was also going to have a, an enormous day of reckoning um, in light of that. Um, did that play out in your view or was that kind of kept as a fairly isolated case and um, been fairly hush-hush since? I think something in between the two. Mm. I think the first thing that came out is that most of the men in our profession in terms of their dealings with women in the profession are actually really good. You know, for my part, I've had 
the most incredible support um, from men in the profession to work me through my last sort of 30-odd years. So, um, you know, for the most part, the guys in our profession are professional, wonderful, decent people who, you know, know how to treat women appropriately and do. So I think the first thing that came out that was that there wasn't that widespread problem that perhaps some perceive there might be. Um, equally, the positive that came from it is that the courts became more proactive in putting in place policies and, um, you know, mechanisms by which women could feel comfortable. I mean, our own chambers developed a um, policy to make sure we covered all of those equal opportunity issues. I know that the Chief Justice went to a lot of effort to put measures in place. So um, it became that story that people started to talk about and people would say, oh my gosh, you know what happened to me? And the importance of that is I think that men who were inclined to act that way would now be more frightened to do so. You know, I think the person in a position of power who was inappropriate to a young female working for him we'll know there's a real risk that that person will speak out and he'll get in trouble. Yeah. And that, I hope, would be a disincentive to act that way. So perhaps that's going to be the biggest change is that they know it might come out and mm. therefore can't take the risk in the way that maybe 10 years ago you could have safely assumed it would have Could have rolled the dice and yeah. answered your chances of getting away with it. Exactly. Yeah. Can we talk about some of your big early cases sure. now? You, were, you rose to the rank of a senior state prosecutor. Before I get you to uh, to share whatever you can about that, when you when you I know you've worked on both sides of the courtroom, you know, as as on the prosecution side and also defence. When you're a prosecutor, do you, especially in your early days, do you do you kind of feel like you're on the good guys team? Oh yeah, and as I... opposed to the the bad guys. I mean, they're probably not. They're, certainly, they're the accused side, the allegedly bad. <laughs> yeah, I I think that when you're there, or certainly for me when I was there, I did. Yeah. And I think I got a little bit sort of, you know, consumed with that sense of... Sort of going, fighting the good look fight. At, look know? at me go, you know, I'm going and changing the world. And I was definitely a lot sort of um, badass than I would ever be now. You know, I was a lot more excited about getting big sentences, whereas now, you know, I'm not a great believer in yeah. prison as a, a punishment. I think that you know, part of that just comes with maturity and time. But um, you do... You do have, in in a positive way as a prosecutor, you have that sense that you're doing some good. I'm Mm. sure the same that police often do is that you feel like, you know, when you have a historical sex case where there's a a lady who's taken, you know, 25 years to finally tell her story and when you do get a conviction um, or even when you don't and she turns to you and says, you know, I feel like I've finally been heard, you feel really good about yourself. Mm. You know, you feel like you've been part of making a a positive difference. So there are a lot of reasons to feel proud when you're a prosecutor. Um, But I'm not sure that all prosecutors get that balance right and certainly I didn't have that balance right for a while, I'm sure. What were some of the standout cases for you? I'm sure you get kind of so deeply involved in the one that you're working on. Oh, but no, uh, as you reflect, <laughs> what are the ones that really, really stick in your mind? Okay, so the most um, extraordinary case. And I remembered yeah. at the time when I was doing this case thinking, if they made this into a movie, everyone would just say it's a stupid movie because it would never really happen. <laughs> so made up. <laughs> but this, so I was junioring one of the senior prosecutors, um, Evelyn Vickers, and um, it was a case of um, this woman who lived up in the in the Boddington mm-hmm. and she um, had a daughter and her daughter was married but didn't like her husband much and wanted to split from the husband but was struggling with the whole separation and arguments over the kids. So eventually she decided that in order to ease the transition to separating, she'd hire a hitman to bump him off. This is like an ordinary family in, you know, up in Perth 
in yep. an ordinary house. Like we're talking just general country folk. So the daughter hires the hitman. Found a hitman. Found a hitman. What, Turns out he was an undercover cop. Oh, okay, but she didn't know okay, that. Yeah. So she hires the hitman. Like imagine this is a movie. How yeah. ridiculous you'd oh, say. This I'm, is a I'm true I'm already casting story. it in my mind. Okay, it gets <laughs> better. So she hires the hitman. But after a little while, she's like, I'm not so sure about this. I feel a bit awkward. But I don't want to cancel the hitman because he's a hitman and he might get mad at me. Right. So she tells her mum. And she says, look, mum, I've got a hitman to bump off this bloke. Not so sure I want to go through it. The mum says, panic not. I'll do it. I'll talk to him. I'll cancel him. So daughter's like, fantastic. Thanks, mum. So hitman pops over to mum's house. Hitman, of course, being copper. All wired up so we can hear all this. So mum, in between offering some cake and biscuits and, you know, more tea, says to him, look, my daughter doesn't want to use you anymore. And so he's like, no worries, all good, no problem. She says, but hang on, while you're here, I've got someone I want you to bump off instead. (laughs) True story. Wow. And so she does. So she hires him and she arranges for him to bump off her then partner. Wow. And these conversations are all aired live for us all to hear in court. So you've got, you know, um, now, when you kill him, what sort of gun will you use? More cake? Would you like some more tea? Wow. Seriously, she had the hair on this high pony with this cute little ribbon. These things stick out in my memory. Um, and so she then goes to trial for this um, conspiracy, you know, this deciding to kill him off. Um, but the funniest part of the whole trial was that she then calls him, that is the bloke she was going to bump off, to give evidence for her to say, look, there's no way she would have really wanted to kill me because, of course, this poor bloke doesn't want to come to terms with the fact that this lady actually wanted to bump him off. So he actually gives evidence for the defence. To support her? To support her. Wow. Anyway, she gets convicted. She goes to jail. And it was um, just one of the weirdest, weirdest trials. That was about two years into my time at the DPP. That's incredible. And that's when I I think I formed that view that, you know, truth is... I want to know what happened. (laughs) So... Well, to their well, no partnership, got... presumably yeah. it got a bit strained after that well, when I she's locked away. He gave evidence for her and claimed he loved so her. So he did. And he, he basically said, you know, there's no way she really meant it. That's incredible. So that was pretty good. And the only embarrassing part of that trial I also remember, which I can't believe I'm telling you on radio now, but um, I was obviously a lot younger then than I am now and had less wrinkles. And um, there was a really awkward moment in the trial where the jury foreman had written a note to the jury officer to say when the trial was over, could she please give me his phone number so I could give him a call and catch up? So she thought that this was potentially, you know, a problem. So the note was handed up to the judge who then read it in open court. And all I remember is just dying, thinking, great, you know, this is just how I get to launch my legal career. Wow. Anyway, fortunately, everyone thought it was funny except me and except we all moved you. on you and the trial wasn't aborted. But, yeah, sadly that's never happened since, Jim, so work out why, but never mind. Wow, what might have been what your sliding been? doors moment. <laughs> except I was married, so I'm not sure my husband well, would have been no, that happy. Well, no, that doesn't you know, make things any clearer, does it? Um, love these stories. <laughs> Want to hear some more right after we take another break. Linda Black is our special guest in this episode. We'll be back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My guest in this episode is Linda Black, uh, SC. Linda, you switched from the prosecution side to becoming, I suppose, an independent or 
let's say, a defence barrister. Um, why did you switch? What prompted the change? Um, I'd like to give you some profound answer, but it's kind of a sad answer in a way. Right. Um, so I was uh, at the DPP, had been there for nearly 10 years. Um, during that time, I had um, been trying to have kids and was um, unable to have kids for quite a while. So um, eventually had IVF and um, was able to end up having two kids, which was fantastic. And so um, for a while there, my focus was very much on the kids. And, you know, I always wanted to make sure I was that mum who had enough time with children. And working at the DPP was fabulous in that sense because, you know, I felt it was going to be a government department and I'll be able to to balance the two. Um, And my husband was the um, CEO of the Treasury Corporation at the time and he'd actually arranged through an amazing job of his own to work four days a week so he could share in the care of the kids. So I worked part-time for a while with a view to gradually increasing the hours and he would help and my parents would help and we had a nanny one day. It was all going well. Um, So eventually there was a promotion within my section um, and I applied for the promotion, which I was absolutely, you know, eligible for and ready for, and I didn't get it. And the reason they gave me for not getting it was they said, oh, well, you're part-time, so you can't have it. So I went and saw the the boss at the time, who was Robert Cock, and said, look, um, I didn't understand that I couldn't apply. You didn't tell me I wasn't eligible. And he said, oh, no, you were eligible. And I said, well, hang on, that's the only reason I've got. So I was basically given a nod and a wink and told, look, panic not. Um, when the next promotion comes up, you're in. Mm. So the next promotion came up about eight months later. I applied, didn't get it, um, thought this is a bit odd, spoke to two different people about why I didn't just so I could get some feedback and got two completely different answers. Um, the reasons were chalk and cheese and couldn't possibly be reconciled and they were the two interviewers. So I was quite distressed um, thinking what do I do now and basically the real reason I didn't get it was because I was working part-time, even though the position was one that could be done by a part-time person, which I had done for years. So I remember um, having all these ideas and got told, you know, go to the Equal Opportunity Commission and take them. Because back then, DPP didn't have many women who were going off and having children, so it was quite a new concept for them. Um, So this was all sort of breaking law. I mean, who would have thought, hey? Um, Amazing. Yeah. I mean, at my husband's work, um, women used to leave if they couldn't, um, if they had a baby because they weren't allowed to work part-time there either. So, you know, girls today need to understand the world has changed very fast. This Mm. is 25, Mm. 20, 25 years ago. So, you know, my own mother was working for the ABC um, and she had to leave her job when she got married because you weren't allowed to be a married woman working for the ABC. Is that right? Yeah. So my mum had to resign from the ABC because she married my dad. So, the price of love, eh? <laughs> uh, so, you know, I divert, but to say, so um, I had I sort of thought about this and um, my kids were only one and three. My husband had a few personal issues at the time and it was, you know, a really bad time for me. And so I went and saw John McKechnie, who, um, you know, is for me at least the um, most fabulous person I've met in law and has been quite a mentor to me over the years. And I remembered um, talking through the options with John about what I should do, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, but um, John has this um, wonderful way of giving advice to you um, 
without saying very much, but with what he says, saying more than you ever need to hear. And so I was like, what do I do, John? You know, yep. do I take them to court? Do I, do I leave? What do I do? And he said, well, it seems to me, Linda, you have two options. He said, you can consume the next few years of your life in this stressful process of a litigation and a court process and, you know, um, all the things people will say about you and dealing with the emotional fallout of that. Or you can just shove it back at them and go to the bar and make an incredible success of yourself. And I said, oh, I think I know what you think I should do. So really with that, I thought stuff yeah. it. So I went in, handed in my resignation the same day, um, decided to go to the bar, left for the bar within a very short time, having no idea what to do. I knew no one at the bar. I had... Um, no furniture, I had no spare cash, I had no contacts because all my contacts were 10 years' worth of prosecutors mm. and police officers, mm. you know, and here I was deciding not to prosecute and needing to get work from defence lawyers who'd been on the other side of every case I'd done for 10 years. So um, I literally just turned up on day one with no computer, uh, no furniture, no one who knew my number, um, and no idea what I was going to do. The chambers were really good to me and set me up. Um, Ian Viner, who some of you might know, who used to be a member of parliament and was a wonderful um, criminal lawyer, Ian Viner discovered I was there and came down and said, look, I'm moving out. Here's my desk and here's my chairs. You don't even have to pay for them. Oh, this beautiful. I've still got the desk and chairs. Mm. Um, and just said, look, give me a call if you need someone or need some help. And um, a lawyer, Michael Tadori, who you'll know for some reason, beyond me, given I'd only ever been against Michael, rang me and said, hey, I hear you're at the bar, you want a brief? And it all went from there. And you haven't so, looked back. You haven't looked back. But, yeah, it was um, it was a scary time. I you know? bet. It was just having no idea where the work was going to come from, no idea if I'd do any good, still feeling a bit sad about how I'd been treated, trying to deal with really young children. Um but with the help of an incredible family and some good friends at Chambers, it yeah. worked itself out. Yeah. Is it a bit of a club that you have to break into when you, uh, when you join the bar? Yeah. Is well, that putting it mildly? Well, the Chambers I went to, I mean, now it's Francis Burt Chambers has a lot of women, but back then I think I was the sixth woman to work there and there were over 100 barristers. Um, so, And I was the only one that I'm aware of at the time who had babies mm. as opposed to, you know, kids who were older. So there were very few women. Most of the women didn't have kids and certainly no one had little kids. So, you know, for my part, at least it was just every day was breaking new ground. And, you know, I remember saying to someone once, it's no fun being a trailblazer. Like it's actually not an enjoyable thing. And, you know, I look back of women of old who, you know, sat on buses, Rosa Banks and these people who broke new ground. And we look back at them as heroes and admire them, but it's actually no fun breaking new ground. Being that person, just, no. I just it's more wanted, fun to recognise them, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I just want to go in and blend in and just be one of the group. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there was there was and still is a very tight set of people who looked after each other. Mm. And if you weren't in that group, which I wasn't, you had to sort of feel around and find your own way and find your own people. But I think in the end it was good for me because I was forced to just do things on my own, in my own way, with no one else to follow. Um, and I'm sure anyone who you spoke to now who briefs me would say is I'm a bit of a weird barrister, you know. <laughs> I do things differently. My career's followed no path of anyone else's, you know. My combination of radio work and my animal work and all my bits and yeah. pieces is um, I just do things my own way with my yeah. own style. But in a way, that's just, that's probably a good thing. It's my mm. own brand. It's, yeah. it's you know, I'm not like 
anyone else in the profession, and I'm sure many of them are not like me either. You must have accumulated this wealth of knowledge and accumulation of, of secrets, some of them really, really dark, some of them really juicy. I mean, you're, you're holding a lot of people's secrets, aren't you? Does that, does that ever worry you? Oh, it's it's actually really annoying because, you know, when you're at you a... Because you can't share them. Well, yeah. When you're <laughs> at a party, the best thing to do is to be, oh, my gosh, would you believe what I heard today? Yeah. And I, I often think, you know, I know so much cool information about so many things, um, all of which I can't share. But the good thing it makes me as a friend is... I just don't break secrets. You, you, you know, are the I, I am You've the vault. You know, that's my job. That's my yeah. world. Um, but you do. I think the hard part sometimes is you find out sometimes really disturbing and distressing stuff, which you also can't share. Um, and even if you could talk about it, no one really understands. And yeah. it's probably why, particularly criminal lawyers, we have a very um, irreverent, offensive sense of humour. You know, the things that we talk about in a lunchroom if they were overheard by the media and published, you know, it would be a scandal that followed and people would think that we have, you know, no compassion or sense mm. of decency. But actually it is a way of dealing with really horrible things is to have people you can talk about and just bringing in a massive sense of humour into it. Yep. And, you know, I think what's got me through my job is just I have a relatively laid-back relaxed yeah. approach to the world and to people. And um, I think more than anything, what I learned from my father is you just don't judge anyone. And if you cannot, you know, I'll often say to clients, I know you're about to tell me something that's going to be really hard to talk about, but I promise you I've heard worse. I've heard it all. So just tell me, you're going to get no judgment here. How do you deal then with people who, you know, look at you and, you know, perhaps express an anger towards you, How you know, and ask you, how can you possibly defend that person when they've done or are accused of doing such horrific things? And people see you almost as, you know, as a as a defender of their character, st sticking up for them, um, you know, being on the wrong side of the argument here. How do you deal with that? It, it can be hard. Like when you, um, a lot of a lot of women's groups see me as a betrayer of the cause of women because mm. one of the things I get a lot of work in is. Um, cases where I'm acting for a man who's been accused of either um, sexually assaulting a woman or, you know, um, matters where I'm acting for the bloke in a case um, where the woman is the victim. And a lot of people see you as betraying the cause of women mm. by doing that. Um, I get a lot of um, nasty comments written, particularly on social media, if there's a case I've been involved in. Um, and so for the most part, you just have to develop a thick skin. And, you know, often when I talk about it with my dad, he would just say they just don't understand. And when people don't understand, you know, they'll say hateful things. Um, and so, you know, I guess for the most part, it doesn't worry me, but occasionally has there, has there it does. Has there ever been a time where someone's actually just managed to get through that exterior and, and, and cut you? Uh, yeah. Um, I think more it's a combination of you feel hurt but also you feel angry because you, they're wrong, but you can't always explain it because, mm. because I've got all this secret information, because I'm subject to legal professional privilege. You know, like with the police shooting case I did last yep. year. So as you know, I acted for the p first policeman ever charged with murder for uh, shooting a uh, lady um, who was armed with a knife. Yep. And what was really hard was really nasty things were said about me and how I ran the case and suggesting I was racist and... Um, it was upsetting because 
and frustrating because I'm not racist. It's, you know, <laughs> anyone who would know me would tell you I'm not. And the case, neither was the client and neither was the case about race. Um, but I can't properly explain myself or defend myself from these allegations. So you just have to put up with them. And so that is that is a very difficult thing when you are being wrongly accused, but you can't say anything about it. But mm. having said that, it's good for me because that's the position my clients are in all the time. Yep. And all of those clients who aren't guilty of what they're said to have done have to do what I do, which mm. is just grin and bear it. Yep. Um, I'm keen to ask you about Lloyd Rainey as well, which is, of course has been one of the most uh, enduring legal sagas uh, in in memory yeah. uh, here in Perth. It's been an extraordinary case. So I'll ask for your take right after we take a break. And then I want to ask you too how you switch off from all of this, Done. from all of this deep, dark stuff. Does that mean that we get to talk about Finland? Yes. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why? And That's my the... dog. Finland and... and my dog. All right. Plenty to get through. Linda Black is our special guest. We'll be back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. We are hearing some fascinating stories uh, from deep in the legal profession with Linda Black, a prominent uh, barrister here in WA. Um, Linda, it, it struck me just before we started this uh, this recording that you said, you know, after this you were going off to basically just learn about some alleged pedophile <laughs> behaviour. I think, and and that's that's what you do. That's a normal day for you, right? And yeah. I, I'm like, what sort of a? I mean, what what toll does that take on your mind and on your soul? How do you deal with that? So, so just so people can get some sense of what we're talking about, I have to. So, children who make allegations of having been sexually abused will have that recorded in an interview so that they don't have to retell their story over and over. Mm-hmm. And many of those children who come forward and tell those stories are telling the truth and some of them aren't. And my job is obviously to act for clients who say the story that's been told is not true. I didn't do it. And as part of that, you have to obviously go and watch the interview that the child has participated in. And then better still, you have to cross-examine that child. And so, you know, I'll have to cross-examine children who are four, five, six years of age sometimes, Um, you know, teenagers, sometimes girls might the age of my son or the age of my daughter. Um, And one of the things that always goes through your head is, am I just pulling apart this 13-year-old kid who's telling the truth? And, you know, or am I properly doing my client's job and making sure that we're testing the evidence? And, And certainly there are times you walk out of court having done really well and really, you know, pulled apart the story And I'll just stand there and I think, oh, well done you, Linda, you know, 30 years of experience and you've just pulled apart a 13-year-old kid who's shaking in a a chair. So it can be hard. It can be gruelling. But equally, I've done enough cases where the accused's been wrongly accused and, you know, matters have arisen in family court um, and he has lost access to his children uh, because of allegations that are just completely concocted. Mm. And so... In the end, you just have to somehow remind yourself, and as I often say this to clients, is I'm no more than your voice in court. You know, I'll speak when you don't know the words to say. Um, and I'm very careful how I conduct a cross-examination. You know, I'll y- never yell and scream at a child. Um, I'll never be nasty. I'll never, you know, raise my voice. But 
unfortunately, it probably makes me more effective in many ways because I'm sort of calm and nice and they tend to say more. And then, um, you know, if you think too much about trying to work out what really happened, you'll do your head in. Yeah. What you have to think is there's two sides to every story. And my job is to tell one side and the state's job is to tell the other. And the jury's job is to decide mm. what they accept and what they don't. And yeah. when when you can convince yourself of that, it's just fine. But yeah, I, I wouldn't be human if, uh, if there weren't moments yeah. when it really upsets me and I find it hard. Yeah. What about when you have a client who has a compelling case against them and you just want to shake them and go, mate, this is not looking good for you. Take take the deal, plead guilty, whatever, whatever other option there is. But don't go through with this because you're going to get slaughtered. What I mean, what sort of a position is is that like to be in? Well, that's exactly what I do. Yeah. You, the one thing you or anyone who knows of me will know is that I'm incredibly blunt. So I always say to a client, if I tell you you're screwed, you'll know you're screwed. And right. equally, if I say yeah. you've got good prospects, you know you've got good prospects. But I'm, there must be so, some people who just don't want to hear that or accept it. Do you know, though, Tim, right? it's very, very rare. Is it's, it? Most of the time, if I say to the client, you're gone for all money. You're going to get convicted. You're going to get a longer sentence because of it. You should plead or let's do a plea deal. Nearly always they accept it. And yes, of course, every now and then you'll get a client who says, no, I want to go ahead with this. Yeah. Um, but I could count those clients on one hand. So it, the, the truth of it is our system is very well set up for encouraging people to plead guilty. It's the biggest problem with mandatory sentencing because mm. the only type of client that you can't have that conversation with, and there are so many unnecessary criminal trials, is where there is an automatic, enormous sentence that applies with no discretion by the judge. Mm. Because that client's going to go, what's the point? I might as well find it anyway. I'm going to get 15 years regardless. So as long as we have a discretion in sentencing and we can get up to 25% discount for pleading guilty and sparing the child or whoever it might be, the, the trial, um, you can reason with nearly all clients to plead guilty when they should be. Mm. Can we talk about Lloyd Rainey? Sure. As I mentioned, it's been just this epic legal saga that's played out uh, in Perth. I suppose to, to you and others in, in your profession, though, he's uh, he's been a colleague to many people. Uh, he's probably been a foe in the in the courtroom at time. Uh, to some, what's your take on how this has played out? So Lloyd was a very close friend of mine. Yeah, still is. Um, he and I met when I was at the DPP. Um, he was a very kind person to me. Um, helped me a lot in my early days at the DPP. Um, I got to know his kids. I was also got to know his sister. Um, when when Corin first went missing. Um, I had seen Lloyd around that time and so I'd made a statement to the police and um, had a little bit of involvement. And I remember at one point Lloyd saying to me, um, it's really weird, Linda, the, the police are um, acting a bit hostile. You know, I think, I think I've had something to do with it. And I remember saying to him, don't be ridiculous, Lloyd. Anyone who knows you would know that you haven't. But I said, all it's going to take is someone to look at the actual objective facts of the night to know that you couldn't have possibly done it. You know, this just doesn't add up. The timeline doesn't add up. Um, I remember his girls had gone out to the Gwen Stefani, one of the girls had gone to the Gwen Stefani concert and I was like, as if you're going to kill your wife at your own house knowing that someone's going to walk in. So we had this conversation. Next thing, um, Lloyd gets named. Um, it all starts from there. And I remember just being utterly stunned thinking, but he didn't do it and he couldn't have done it. And... What the hell's going on? And it was the first time 
that my job had become real where suddenly it was someone I knew mm. who, as far as I was concerned, was being wrongly accused. And then what made it worse was Perth just decided that they had the right to decide his case based on what they were reading in the media. And I was just absolutely stunned at how opinionated everyone became. And suddenly everyone was an expert and, you know, because people knew I knew Lloyd. They would just come up going, so do you reckon he did it? And I'd just look at them going, you know, this is my friend. And I was also friends with Corin. Like, you know, this is just a weird conversation to be having. And even to this day, you know, people, shopkeepers, taxi drivers, people. Still a topic of conversation. And they still tell me with this sense of authority that he did it or didn't do it. And I just want to say, how the hell would you know? Like, how do people think they know the answers to these things? Most of them weren't in the trial. Most of them don't know what the evidence was. None of them know Lloyd. None of them understand the detail of it. And yet they all have these opinions that as far as they're concerned are fact. And I guess I saw Lindy Chamberlain live in action before me because I just kept, I got really angry and I just kept thinking, how can I work in this? In- I nearly left my job because, is that I, right? yeah, I just remember thinking, how can I work in a justice system that is so unjust and that could treat someone like this? It, it did my head in and watching the reaction of the public. You know, Lloyd and I would go out for a quiet coffee. People would walk past and spit in his face while we were sitting there talking. They would yell at me, how can you sit there with a murderer? You know, this was after he was acquitted. This is after the Court of Appeal acquitted him. It was just... It was honestly one of those times that we as a community should be thoroughly ashamed of how we behaved because Lloyd and his girls were treated deplorably and he was, as far as our legal system is concerned, an innocent man, as far as I'm concerned, was an innocent man. Mm. Um, And it it really messed with me and it made it very hard for me to get a relationship with the police back. Um, Of course I did and now I do a lot of work for the police union and I love it, but it was a very unsettling time for me and, of course, it was a, a hell of a yep. time for him. How do you switch off from all of this? What are your outlets? Well, I've got a hot property in the hills um, with a lot of kangaroos, which yeah. I just love. This isn't so. your COVID doomsday <laughs> plan, is it? <laughs> well, our house is a COVID doomsday house. My husband's a bit of a hoarder. He'll kill yeah. me for telling you this, but we have a... Uh, a linen cupboard full of a lot of non-linen now. But anyway, we have masks. Anyone needs them. We have about a 1,000 of them. But, yes, yeah, so we, we have – we're set up for that. But, no, I um, I like bushwalking. Um, yeah. I like hanging out with my little boxer dog. Um, and most of all, I love travelling. So I have always um, had very little money in a bank account because every cent I earn from my job um, has been spent on travelling since since I was young. So it's um, until COVID hit, we'd gone overseas mm. every single year at least once. Um, and that's just our kids have been travelling since they were four weeks old. So travelling is, is for me, the, the best outlet. I, I basically work my butt off when I'm here. To travel. And then I take eight weeks off in normal times, not mm-hmm. during COVID, but eight weeks off over the course of a year and I travel. And I mentioned at the start, you you have hold you do hold this uh, peculiar fascination with the nation of Finland. We're obsessed with Finland. Obsessed? Yeah. Can I say you, you're we're obsessed? Obs- like, we're, we're buying it's, a house it's, in it's, Finland. We're it's obsessed diagnosed. With it's you diagnosed. are absolutely obsessed with Finland. Why? Well, so my husband went from an economist to be a primary school teacher, yep. but he's nerdy smart, like crazy mm-hmm. smart. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't want to just teach. He wanted to learn all about the way children learn, think and, you know, maths and all this stuff. And as 
some of you will know, um, Finland has one of the highest literacy and numeracy rates in the world. Finland is one of the best education systems in the world. They have no private education. It's all public education and yep. it's all high quality. Yep. They have less hours at school in a given day and yet they learn more and they learn better. Um, it's... It's this incredible it's country. because it's dark outside so much there. There's nothing, Ooh, nothing to do out there. It's like 23 hours of sunlight <laughs> well, in summer. In summer, true. Yeah. They make up for it. Um, and so that was kind of what it got us both a bit interested in it, although Michael far more than me. Um, and then we, I began to be interested in the fact they had this really low crime rate. They had this amazing health system. There'd be no work they for have, you there. Uh, but who cares, you know? It's a great city. Um, they have a... They, when we were building Optus Stadium, <laughs> um, they were building the most incredible library for the whole city to come to. And um, it just became more and more interesting place in terms of, you know, everyone speaks five languages. So my husband was obsessed with it. I just kind of indulged him and said, oh, hell, it can't be as good as you say it is, but let's just go for a bit of fun. And I stepped foot in Helsinki and just fell in love. It's just really? an incredible place. Until you go there, it's hard to explain. But... A couple of little things I'll tell you. The first is that kids at seven at night are walking miles and miles in the dark with not a worry in the world that anything will happen to them, and it doesn't. Um, The cash registers in the shops are at the back of the shop with no security guards and no tags on anything because no one steals stuff. There's a buffet place we used to go to, and you'd walk in through the front door, you'd eat. And it would be near impossible to find the cash register, but everyone pays. You know, you buy a pass to go on the trams and there's no inspectors who ever check it. It's just this place that's built on trust. Mm. They And it's this place that's built on this presumption that everyone has the right to the same opportunities, which we can say what we like in Australia and America. We're not an egalitarian society at all. If you're a kid who's got parents who can send you to hail, you're going to have an easier, um, better education than if you're um, out at one of the impoverished schools. And we all know that. Um, If you're in Finland, you go to the same school as the rich kid next door. You use the same hospital system. You have the same access to doctors. There is no difference. Um, it is, and it's not communism. You know, it's socialism. It's what it was supposed to be before. You're the selling it. Took you, over. You're a great ambassador. And and I've got to say, honestly, <laughs> you feel it. You feel it when you're there. And the other yeah. thing I love is no one talks to you for the sake of talking to you. But if you ask for something. They are just so friendly and, and helpful, but they're, they're quite literal. So I'll give you one cute story about Finland, which will tell you about the Finnish people. We're on an aeroplane um, coming in to land. The plane had been delayed. We're about to land in Helsinki. There's a German man next to me, lovely guy. So he said to the um, hostess, look, I've got a connecting flight. Um, I'm wondering if you can help. And he's like, you know, so she says, when you get off the plane, you must go down this way and turn right and go and see this person. He's like, but what's going to happen to my luggage? And she pauses and she says... I am not the person to talk to you about your luggage. I am the person to talk to you about where you should go when you get off the plane. And so we just laughed and thought it's very Finnish. It's just they're there to literally answer your questions and direct and you that's politely. It. But, you know, don't go into small, silly talk about other stuff. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, it's um, it's a wonderful place. And, of course, it's surrounded by Iceland and Sweden and Denmark and all these other amazing Norway, these mm. countries that um, are absolutely beautiful and incredible places and quite different to here. And it sounds like you're gagging to get there. Oh, I tell you, I'm just <laughs> counting down the minutes. Well, good luck uh, getting to Finland. I'm not sure when it's going to be, but I'm sure you're um, you're watching the, the rules unfold.
Yeah, we have, we, we, have the have a we have a flight booked. We have a flight booked. Fingers crossed for right. July. Uh, and in the meantime, look forward to uh, to seeing all of the things that you get up to uh, defending people. Lovely. Thank in you. In Perth Tim. against all sorts of uh, allegations, shall we say. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming in and sharing some of your stories. And, um, yeah, look forward to hearing your travel stories from Finland next time. Lovely. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, maybe I'll get there too one day. Thank you. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. In this episode with Linda Black, don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to joining us next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.